Hello and welcome to the 45th ever, as my uh, assistants tell me, Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, which is a podcast all about uh, board games, table games, games you can play in your own home with your friends, with people you invite around, with relatives. It doesn't matter. Don't care. Uh, who's on this podcast with me? Who are you? Uh, my name is Quentin Smith and What's I... What's my name? Uh, you're Paul Dean. Hey, Paul. This is going to be a very... Uh, Oh, we've lost it. We've lost the flow. We've uh, trampling over each other like a couple of board game wildebeests. I'm weirdly excited about this podcast, and I don't know why. Oh, that's fine. That's good. It's good to be excited. Uh, Okay, life. Right, God. (laughs) Let's kick off. You've been packing boxes all day, so you're exhausted, and it's like midnight for me in the UK on a Sunday. And I was in the club last night, so I'm in. I'm in pieces. (laughs) Much like board games. Right, what we got coming up today on the podcast? We're going to be talking about uh, a few board games known as Happy Mm -hmm. Pigs. We're going to be talking about Via Nebula, the new Martin Wallace game. I played the Pokemon trading card game, and I yeah, you did, and I want to. No. Why? why. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've been playing Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. You've played some Mission Red Planet, The Great Dinosaur Rush, Mutera, and Herd. Also. Yeah, Herd. It's got to be said in a certain way. I don't know. It's like Herd. Uh, herd oh, it's something. a Scandinavian game. Yes, Scandinavian. Um, we have an interview with renowned and the most prolific board game uh, creator in the world, Reiner Knizia, Dr. Reiner Knizia. Yeah. Um, although not a lot of people know this, his PhD isn't in game design, it's actually in uh, Tigers. So uh, still, he's pretty good. True. Yeah. So the Reiner Knizia interview is going to be hidden at the little end of this podcast, like a big dessert that's, that's the same size as the meal you just had. Uh, but we've but, been playing some hidden. games. Uh, yeah, sorry, I was thinking about dessert. Okay, can we just get straight to Pokemon because I want to know what's going on? Uh, you, yeah, you can. That's okay. I have a friend who uh, does tech and games for The Guardian, and he said, Quince, do you want to play the Pokemon trading card game? And because I enjoy spending time with him and Pokemon, but not necessarily the trading card game, I agreed. And we played Draft, which if people aren't aware of how that works with trading card games, it's a super hardcore way of playing them where players open booster packs of cards at the table, and then you draft them, like in Seven Wonders, which is where you have a hand of cards, you take a card you want, and you pass it around. Um, and in doing that, across about an hour, you build decks out of cards, not knowing what cards are coming down the pipe. Um, and with uh, basically both of us having never played Pokemon before, we built our decks and then did Pokemon-related battle. Um, and the only point that I had to say about it was um, it's interesting compared to Pokemon Go coming out now because Pokemon Go um, uses the original 150 Pokemon because it's, I think, more aimed at adults who had a memory of playing that game, uh, you know, drinking orange juice and sitting on their pants in a sunbeam and playing Pokemon and they just want to return to that time before uh, taxes and mortgages and... and Oh, God, I was just going to say some super inappropriate stuff there. (laughs) So (laughs) let's just be on standby for me being rude. Um... The funny thing about playing the trading card game now is I didn't recognize, like, a single Pokemon. Like, it was insane EX evolutions. It was characters I didn't recognize. There were, like, fairies and turtles, and I was awash in branding. Um, and, the, and the game was fine. Um, it's got a neat thing whereby you need to eliminate a certain number of the opponent's Pokemon. Um, but you can swap them out. So, like, if you're beating up on my uh, Ekans or whatever... Um, I don't know what that is. It's a snake. It, it's one of okay. the. It's classic Pokemon design because is it? the Pokemon Ekans is a snake, and it's called Ekans because Ekans is an anagram of snake. Oh, 
hard. Um, yeah, I, I actually quite like Pokemon and the design of Pokemon, so I don't want to rag on it too hard. But um, yeah, so like your opponent has to beat up a certain number of your Pokemon, but if your Ekans is like close to death, you can just swap it for another Pokemon. Um, but you do that instead of attacking. So uh, it's cute. Like, uh, and it's it's very different from Magic the Gathering, which is what people might have played. Um, worth picking up, I think, if you, if you quite like Pokemons um, or uh, snakes. Um, but what I found interesting about it, and I want to move on because we've played way more interesting games than this, is the moment I finished playing it, I, want, I in fact went and bought a Pokemon video game because um, I hadn't played one on my DS in ages. And, oh my God, like, really? It, it was an astonishing success of branding. Like, I, uh, I played the trading card game, went, that was all right, and then I went and spent £40 on a Pokemon game. Like, it, I... I am so surprised. I mean, I, I'm partly surprised at how many poker Pokemons there are now. You mean? Because it's just ridiculous. And I vaguely, you know, I remember a lot of the classic old ones from not really being, for, being a fan, but it's just like, it's like how you remember songs. It's like this song was around for a long time and people mentioned it. So you cannot get that out of your head. But they're up to, what, thousands of them now or something? I just, sure. I can't process that. It's ridiculous. Uh, yes, um, there is an incredible... The only article I would point people to with regards to a Pokemon-related phenomena is if you Google Steve Hogarty and Pokemon, you'll find Steve Hogarty's incredible article of uh, going to a Pokemon tournament. Um, the video game, not the card game, but uh, it features the great line, uh, everywhere I look, a child is crying. <laughs> <laughs> He's uh, just... And just read a bunch of his stuff. He's very good. Yeah. Um, Let's all right. I wish I hadn't opened that. Okay, my turn to Pokemon to pick from this list of games you've been playing. Uh, what Do it. I don't, I this is I'm gonna pick the game I know the least about. What the heck is Muterer? That's spelled M E U T E R E R. Mitera. Mitera. Sorry, I got excited again. Uh, it's a German game about so Mitera, I think, is like German for mutineer. Oh, I've heard about this. Oh, so actually, you, you secretly do. Mm. It uh, The first thing it reminded me of is a game that's still an old favorite of mine, which is Citadels, because it's a combination of kind of hidden roles, and it's a card game, and you, you're basically a trader uh, on a ship, or a bunch of people on a ship trading. You go around in a circle of cards, which are a bunch of different islands, and each of these has some kind of resource that it wants. So you're drawing cards from a deck and hopefully you're getting a resource that is a resource that will uh, be something you can trade in by landing on the right island. Mm -hmm. But you also determine which island you land on by picking uh, a roll from a stack in the middle and the rolls are all hidden. One person is visibly the captain. Visibly? It's like they're taller? Yeah, it's... (laughs) They have a card in front of them that's basically like, I'm the captain and, uh, and I think we should land on this island. But depending on whether you draw, choose to draw cards that make you um, a member of their crew or a mutineer, you can actually change where the ship uh, goes to port, which changes which goods you can trade. But as soon as you pick your roll from this uh, pile of rolls, draw face down, you take that secretly, uh, score a little away, you can't pick up any more goods. Until you can do that, you can actually be constantly gathering goods, which is helpful because that widens the possibility of where you can land and trade and score points. It's kind of very very easy to explain, but there's quite a bit of nuance in it. And we, I'd never seen it before, I tried it, and it was one of those things where you do the first round of play and you're like, oh, I just get it, I get all the rolls, I get how this works. And I really liked it. 
Yeah, it looks neat. It came out in the year 2000, which explains why its name is in the original German as opposed to like a more globally friendly name. It looks I cute. Guess, I guess there must be like an English language version of it now, but my friend had the old, old German one. So that's that's what we broke out. And, you know, there's no text on the card, so it didn't really matter. It looks it looks neat, man. I like the idea of, you know, having all of your, I don't know, rubies and being like, we're going to the Ruby Island. And everyone else is going, nah, let's not stop at the Ruby Island. It's a that is place. basically exactly what happens all the time, <laughs> except you're trying to second guess what cards people have got, what they've drawn. Um, and, you know, all you need is three or four people and it just descends immediately into sort of a, you know, game of jerks, which is fine. <laughs> Oh man, um, we, I, we can. Uh, this ties into some news that was announced this week recently. Uh, Paul, I feel old, and the reason I feel old is uh, Shut Up and Sit Down has now been running for long enough that one of the games we reviewed because it was relatively new um, mm. has just had a new edition announced. And I'm talking about Citadels, which you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah, it's got uh, what shiny new cards, a new, a big new crown or something. It's got a big box. It's going to be uh, pretty good, I'm sure. Fantasy Flight are extremely good at curating board games and like gently improving them. But my God, like the fact that five years ago we reviewed a cool new game called Citadels, and now we like have to return and you know review it again. That's do we, do we have to? I guess we can look at it again, definitely, because how different will it be we're not quite old enough that we had like multiple editions of cosmic encounter no no but we did you know review descent and then look at the second edition descent i don't know man i don't have much to say on this but i feel weird it's uh, the fact of life sign of the times it's gonna (laughs) it's gonna happen with it's already starting to be the case that I look at Shut Up Sit Down videos five years ago and I'm astonished at like, you know, what I'm wearing or how I look. I look so young, so full of energy. It's like, oh God, let's let's talk about something else. I'm gonna pick something else from your list of games. <laughs> Unless you have anything else to say about Mwyoitoror. Uh, I, I would say, uh, certainly for a game that is the size of a small pack of cards, it's the most fun I've had with a tiny game like in a while. Oh, really? I, I really value that. Like you could play, it's a kind of, I, I always have a soft spot for sort of travelish games, and it's a game that you could basically, like, you could play it on an aeroplane. Yeah. Well, maybe not nowadays because the tables are so damn small, but if you had a friend next to you and you shared tables, you could probably... And I love that. I just like that kind of thing. What, being sat next to someone and playing on two tiny tables? Yeah, and ga- games that travel well. You know, when you are with someone and they just they open their pocket and there is a game in there, and you're like, oh, that's you know, we've got to wait for a bus at the bus terminal or the train's late and nothing to do. And, oh, you've just, like, killed an hour. We're going to have a really good time for an hour. This could have been a, a crap, you know, journey where we didn't have anything to do and now we're going to have a lovely game of a game. And then the bus is on time and that hour is snatched away from you by the, the hands of time. You do and you reach out for all the cards and you try and put them back in the thing quick enough and, and uh, the Mission guy, Red Planet. The, <laughs> the driver of the bus <laughs> comes out and says, we are leaving! And then because he's German too. Yeah, and then you say, "But this game is about mutinies," and there's a joke there, but I can't find it. Uh, <laughs> I played Mission Red Planet, which I'd never played before, which we have an old review of on the site. Yeah, we do. We reviewed uh, it when the first edition of it came out, and so Mission Red Planet is another game quite like Citadels. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this one, like, if people aren't aware of the central Citadels mechanic, that's so good. Um, it's there's basically a, an actual game attached in the original game of Citadels. You're building a city in Mission Red planet you're doing area control on mars but uh what's central to the game or even the real game is that a number of roles are available 
Um, and like, for example, in Mission Red Planet, you know, the, the pilot lets you change the direction of a rocket. The, the travel agent lets you put more people on different rockets that are all going to Mars. Spies and saboteurs that you blow up rockets. And you all pick your roles in secret. And that is as much about what do you need to do as what do you think your friends are going to do. Um, and so Citadels, by, uh, by contrast, is a game where you can try and assassinate other characters and you can... Uh, like the assassin is the is the fantastic one, right, Paul? Where you just yes. you don't say which player you want to assassinate if you choose to be the assassin. You name a character, um, which is gorgeous because uh, you have to then try and predict what that guy in the lead uh, picks. And if he was smarter than you, then you just end up assassinating the guy in last place. It's uh, it's kind of lovely. They both have the thing where you can do an amount of deduction. You can look at like. Particularly in Red Planet, where once you've played a role, it sits in front of you and it's like, you know, I cannot play that role again until I play the character that lets me pick up all my cards. Yeah. So you can try and, you know, deduce who is potentially going to play something next. You have that, that hidden information, but that potentially uh, detectable thing. And the further the game goes, the more and more you know about what people are doing. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't get any easier it doesn't get any less tense i really really liked it and i really liked it for how the area control mechanic is just really simple it's just you need to have more cubes on a bit of mars than anywhere else well they're not cubes in the new edition right they're like little tiny uh, plastic soldiers oh yes sorry more soldiers even you need you need to have more things in a place i was thinking of el grande oh um, yeah i prefer the... el grande do you to mission red planet yeah i do oh, you I know might. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, El Grande um, is another area control game um, with a mini game to determine where you put cubes on the board. Um, but I adore El Grande, and actually, I'm like, I was hot with the review, but since then, I've kind of gone a little more lukewarm on Mission Red Planet because um, the picking roles and assigning people to rocket ships and blasting off to Mars is amazing. Like that's so beautiful as all the players like are essentially like trying to cram into different train carriages, except the train yeah. carriages are all going to different places. And then some of the train carriages explode. Like it's <laughs> it's beautiful, and I've not seen that before. But the actual uh, looking at Mars and trying to determine, well, where do I want men? You know, uh, where can I like play the girl that lets me move men if I go here? Like, and then working out the, the little itty bitty point values of what the different Mars rocks are worth and what your secret mission is. That was categorically not fun for me. Um, really? And yeah, and I love all the the sixty or fifty percent of Mission Red Planet that's getting in rockets. And then when I'm looking at where I want those rockets to go, because I do analyze, I am quite competitive. Um, I found myself not having fun. Um, hmm. In contrast with something like El Grande or Alien Frontiers, which are both games I'll always play, where um, deciding where to go on in the areas is 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 fun you know what it is it's like i think the fun of area control is essentially getting into bidding wars with people where it's like you know uh watching your friends for example one of them puts a, a, a guy in this sector of a place and then another guy's like oh no and puts two people and the other one goes ah and puts three people in like that's fun um what's less fun about area control is determining you know which areas are best um because that's just sort of like reading maths and cross-referencing numbers and because mission red planet removes that choice of where you put things fundamentally the rockets are all going to different places um it removes probably the most fun part of area control which is deciding which of your friends you're going to compete with oh well i mean that's i i think that's wrong but it's a good <laughs> no but i mean you're right it's a very good point um i'm glad you I had fun really... with it man loads of people on the internet love that game to pieces I really did, and I really liked the fact that uh, that a role just you know you you can very easily change things up to to be like well, you know this this 
Picard lets me move a person from a place on Mars to a different place on Mars, which could completely change the dynamic. And it's it's a game where it feels like very simple decisions can have very big ramifications. And I like that. I found that a lot of fun. I mean, it is. It's just so funny that you can have like two players desperately like cramming people into a rocket that's going to a really important place. And as their six astronauts are sat in the seats, like looking at their watches, waiting to blast off, you just walk up and change the sign of where it's going to. Yeah. Like it's so cartoony. And then yeah. suddenly you've got like this massive squad of astronaut warriors that fly off to a shit heap part of Mars that no one <laughs> wants. Like that's gorgeous. It was, I don't know, it was good fun. I will definitely be playing that again. Uh, yeah, no, and add, as you should, because the new edition looks lovely. Um, can, you, can you tell me about pigs? Happy pigs. That's good, because that means we're saving my game of Via Nebula till last, and Via Nebula uh, is probably the best thing I've played recently. Um, none of this stuff is quite good enough for a video review, which was annoying, because I was like questing, casting around for a game that was good. Um, luckily, I found Ra which we're not going to talk about today because we just put out a gorgeous video review, but check out our site or our YouTube channel for our review of Ra, because oh, A, it's, really good. it's the best game I've played in ages, and B, um, you can see a worrying amount of my thigh. Uh, yes, that's a... I, I, I have happy memories of us playing that and having... <laughs> some sulks over what happened oh, but you man. know good sulks yeah good sulks like um because when games are f the difference between good sulks and bad sulks in board games is really just how long the game is like games can be cripplingly unfair but in a five minute game no one cares in a half an hour game you care a little it's only in like two hour games where you get screwed that, that it becomes miserable that's true um, it's yeah, just so, the right length that that, that works. Sorry, yeah, go on. It's so quick, yeah. Um, so Happy Pegs is a game that I played recently. I'm going to uh, do some cheeky Googling. Actually, you Google it so I can talk. Um, okay. Because there was an edition of this that came out a while back, and uh, ELO have just come out with a new edition of Happy Pegs this year. I don't know when the original game was from, but it's a really neat little um, economic game. And a while back on the site, I reviewed the new deluxe edition of Power Grid, and I said in that, like, one of the advantages it has is there's not that many uh, nice, crunchy economic games that sit up to six people. Um, and then along comes Happy Pigs, and it's a really great little game about farming pigs um, for up to six people. Um, and it's good. The, the, the really basic and fun thing that it does is it gives you a little pasture, and your pasture is a grid. If you bring up a picture, it'll be a lot easier for you to understand what I'm saying. I'm actually looking at it right now. It's very cute, and yeah. the pigs are square. The pigs are all square. There's other animals in it as well that you can see, like little ducks on the backgrounds of the cards and stuff, and the ducks are square as well. <laughs> or cubes, we should say. They're not two-dimensional. Um, and what's gross, it's nasty as well, because the little piglet squares look quite cute. But the, when pigs get to their biggest size, they're, like, they're covered in sweat droplets and they look so gross um so yeah happy folks you get a little grid like a grid of almost graph paper of grass in front of you every player gets one and then um you have a couple of piglets on it and uh there are four actions anyone can take on a turn right which are feeding at which point you swap um a certain number of pigs on your board for the next size up off pig and hopefully you can fit that in your grid so you're kind of looking at your grid and trying to work out if you can even do that if you have loads of pigs or if like because they will just swell to fill as much space as you give them it's like uh it's like cooking you know rice or something where they just balloon um <laughs> balloons would have been a better example than rice what the hell is wrong with me um they're like balloons you inflate until there's no more room um but square balloons uh so you can feed your pigs you can uh go shopping which enables you to buy pigs, vaccinations, uh, superfoods, uh, more pasture, so you can get more of those pasture boards so you have more room for pigs. Um, you can sell your pigs, which involves um, 
literally selling as many pigs as you want, and obviously bigger pigs are worth more money. And finally, you can uh, breed pigs, and then for every two pigs you have, it produces another piglet. Um, so I've skipped the fun part of the game, and are you ready for it now, mm-hmm. Paul? Yeah. So each turn, um, you flip a card which says uh, how good each particular action is. So it'll say like, um, oh, if everyone chooses to breed pigs this turn, you could produce up to eight piglets. Uh, here's the thing, though. Um, you all then use your four discs to assign which of the four actions you're doing, breeding, feeding, selling, or buying. Mm-hmm. And then let's say you and I are both breeding, Paul, and I said we could have, like, what was it, like six piglets? Is that the number I said? Yeah. Um, if you and I both pick breeding, we can each only breed three piglets. If three people pick breeding, we can each breed oh. two, and so on. So the entire game is like, if you look at the card and then maybe, like, oh, if, if I go buying... Um, you don't get much, so maybe I'll try and buy, because if I'm the only person who goes buy, then I get still get loads of buying. Um, so and then you so you have this like 10 second economic thing where you're constantly trying to buy pigs, sell, breed, and feed. And there's you're always trying to do it at awkward times and second guess your friends. Um, and that's the whole game, you know. And there's other awful stuff, like if you don't vaccinate your pigs at the end of a season, they just die immediately. <laughs> like uh, they get basically four diseases a year, four plague outbreaks a year. It's good. Oh my god! It's really like it. It was just shy of me being able to do a video review on it because it's like you probably haven't heard of it and we probably don't recommend it. But like, it was fun. I don't know if it's as fun as um, other economic games I'm playing recently. But like, basically, if someone maybe I should do a video review because but I'll play it some more because every time I can imagine I saw it, I'd be like, yeah, I'll give it another shot. Something really satisfying about just covering your field in piglets, and then having- it looks—it really looks like it's angling itself to be like very accessible and very fun and very silly. Yeah, and- the, the art is so nice, and the cardstock is really soft, um, which is yeah. usually a comment like, "Oh, I'm such a nerd if I'm saying that the uh, the cardstock is soft." And no, but it, it looks like the production values are kind of cute. And I just, I just you know, if we were sat down playing something, certainly like I. This looks like something I would be happy to like drop down in front of friends or, you know, if we were in the same place and you broke this out and said, do you want to play this? I would immediately be like, yep, yep let's do it. Because it looks, you know, kind of stupid. It in is. In a wonderful way. Uh, it, it just looks You silly. know what, man? It might have the best set dressing for an economic game that I can think mm. of. Like, I, like, it's so, like, everyone who looks at this game will like it. Um uh, although topically, um, and because I talked about this game on the Tuesday Night Games podcast, when I appeared on that <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago. Um, hey, uh, happy pigs. Um, if you are a sort of quasi-vegetarian or care about animal welfare standards, do try and buy uh, pork from uh, good uh, companies because uh, the pig meat industry is completely fucked up and very bad. Wow. So let's talk about some <laughs> some fun games. No, that's. I like that you you you're railing against big meat. I am, and you know, hey, pigs are more intelligent than dogs, so it's really messed up that we uh, that we treat them the way we do. Uh, now that I've completely killed the uh, mood of the podcast, uh, let's talk about a game <laughs> that isn't Happy Pigs. Um, God, uh, can I talk about Via Nebula, and then we'll bounce back to you for the last couple of things you've been playing. Go on there. So you, this was something that you are really excited about. You've left you know, this. again, it's ah, oh, I, I, I like it. I, yes. I really like it a lot. And again, it's probably not video review material because this year we really are trying to put out videos and stuff that's super exciting or hyped. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Via Nebula is a Martin Wallace game um, that is really strong. It's from Space Cowboys, is the publisher, who are the people who made uh, Black Fleet and Splendor. They're like Ooh. they're really trying to put out like some high quality stuff. Um, Wonderful, Splendor, very good game. Yes, and like Splendor, this has an 
incredible inlay um, where, uh, and I don't know if this will excite other people as much as it excites me. So there's resources in the game, you know, wood and stone and brick and stuff. And the place in the inlay where you put them, the uh, the big indent, the big, uh, what's the word, like pit, is shaped like the material in question. So the little wood logs you put in the wood log shaped pit in the inlay. Mm -hmm. um, that's it. That's the end of what I had to say about inlays. Hopefully, at least someone out there <laughs> has gotten really excited about that because um, clearly it didn't work on you. So Via Nebula is a game where it's a building game. Um, I'd call it quite similar to Settlers of Catan in as much as um, it's a load, it's a board covered in hexes and you're building uh, cities with uh, different resources that are available from different hexes. Um, but the, the thing we've got is that there's been an awful mist that's enveloped the world. Kind of like in oh, the I hate mist. Kind I like hate the, it when it the, does that. The plot of Demon Souls. Yeah, it's like Demon Souls, but the happy ending whereby, oh, then the mist goes away and now you all rebuild cities again. Um, so the thing you're trying to do is connect paths to uh, city spaces. So, like, let's say, Paul, you put a building site on one of the city hexes on the pre-printed board. Um, mm -hmm. That means you are saying to the table, because to end the game, you have to build all five of your cities and you only have five building sites. So when you put a building site down, you're committed. You have to build a city there. Yeah. Um, and then there are different cards on the top of, like, cities that are built, whether, like, trading posts or alchemist labs. And you've got secret ones in your hand. And they all require different resources. So maybe you want to build an alchemy lab, Paul. Well, who wouldn't? Um, and that requires, like, <laughs> wood and brick and uh, stone, say. You're going to have to then link your city through green paths by clearing out the mist to those three resources. So maybe there's a brick hex a couple of hexes away. You can then put a little meeple on it, which means, oh, that meeple's now handing out bricks from that space. And if you can clear the mist, which just takes action points um, from that brick to your city, you can then spend more action points to transport the brick to your city. And again... I, I've buried the lead. Like Happy Pigs, the rule that makes this exciting is coming up now. You ready, Paul? Uh, yes. So the thing about Via Nebula is that um, when someone puts a meeple on a resource, unlike Settlers of Catan, that resource doesn't claim for them. All you do is unlock the resource for the entire table. And similarly, when you build roads by clearing mist, you don't make a road that's yours. You just clear the mist so anyone oh, yeah. can then use that hex. Um, and then... The final thing the game does is give you all an incredibly limited number of action points. So it's not like on your turn you're like, oh, I'll claim this resource and transport it and clear some mist and then build the city. No, you get to do half of that. So the fun thing about it is that it's Catan, but unlike Catan where everything you do blocks someone else, it's the opposite, where every, every play anyone makes unlocks the paths unlocks paths and resources for other people to steal or use which thematically i guess makes sense that's the thing that potentially you know could happen you are a person you discover you rediscover a thing it becomes available yeah exactly it's it's you're actually like building cities together it's a lot more like a, a plausible uh, depiction of an economy it's not like you know you have a steel industry that has steel and then goes no one can have this steel but me um so yeah the thing that was funny about via nebula and the thing that was maybe best about it is you'd have these moments of like great rushes of construction where like someone would unlock a resource and i'd go oh but then i just need the wood to finish the city so i quickly claim the wood and then someone quickly clears the path and then everyone builds like cities um, but then equally, when the board state is bad and you're all looking at the board and there's no good building sites and the resources are all far away, none of the players want to do stuff which will enable the players to, like the subsequent yeah. players to do things. But you still have to spend your action points. So you have to affect the board in some way. So like 
it's kind of this grandmother's footsteps type thing where when the board is bad, you don't want to help anyone. So you're all willfully trying to do useless shit. Um, but eventually that useless shit toppled, like, you know, tips over into someone looking at your useless move and going, oh, actually, I can use this. Um, and then clears some mist and claims a resource. Or, and then as soon as they do that, then you get a rush of construction again. So, so we're looking at, at pictures of this, and it actually looks pretty cool as well. Like, it's got a load of uh, kind of lovely wooden pieces, colorful tokens. Yeah, this is Via nice. Nebula, uh, V-I-A Nebula, if anyone, uh, which means by road in Latin, which I Does figured really? out by myself, yes. Wow, I did not know that. Uh, yeah, because we wondered what the name was, and then we did some thinking and put our middle-class heads together. <laughs> and, uh, Interesting. Yeah, um, but yeah, so Via so, Nebula, if people want to Google it. Here's, here's a question then. I mean, looking at this and thinking about things like alchemy, I'm instantly reminded of Terra Mystica. Yeah, you know... How do you feel like putting those next to each other or, or comparing them? I think it's like putting a banana split next to a banana. I think, um, uh, you know, a banana split is is always delicious and that's what Terra Mystica is in this analogy if it wasn't clear. Um, but sometimes a banana's nice. Um <laughs> what, what the hell is the matter with me, Paul? Oh, no, God. it's great. It's helpful to because some people out there will have not played Terra Mystica or Via Nebula. Uh, they will have seen a banana or a picture of a banana. Do you or will know somebody who is a banana. Do so, you remember the vine I linked in the company Slack um, a month ago, which was a vine of someone, and the, the title of the vine was person who thinks the stringy bit of the banana is the only bit you eat? <laughs> Um, and then yes. The, yes, and then the vine is just him meticulously peeling the string off, eating it, and throwing the banana in the bin. Ah, oh, I love, I love vines. Uh, we'll now have to link to that in the podcast description. Too. Oh, I hope I remember. God, people. I, I remember because this is an Irish man who has made a number of videos that are all quite, all very good and all quite absurd. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, it's it's like I mean, Terra Mystica is like a real insane, mad classic of board game design that. Uh, that I wish I got to the table more often. Via Nebula is not as much fun. Um, you know, in my RAW review, it was interesting because we played it the week before we played RAW. And uh, in my RAW review, I said that one of the things I really liked about that is it's a um, a 45-minute game and a big box. And it's plush with nice components. But it has the tonality of a small box card game where, uh, you know, it's breezy and you talk about it. And it's, it's relaxed yeah. and you have fun. Um, and we love that. And Via Nebula is the opposite. It takes pretty much exactly as much time as a game of Ra, 45 minutes, except you are silent the entire time. And uh, and it's it's an interesting puzzle, and it looks gorgeous. Um, it's just a shade less uh, immediately rich. Like, it's just not the kind of thing you play and you go, oh, well, now I've learned so much, I want to play it again and put the skills to use. It's like, nah, you 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 played your best, and you don't. there's not that much to figure out. Um, not to say it's not difficult, it's just that uh, the lessons of it aren't so uh, immediate and clear. Um, yeah, it's decent. So d does that mean that you didn't necessarily feel like you would open it up again another time and have a very different experience? Yes, that's the way to put it. It did not uh, make it into my collection. Um, we played it, and mm. then it, rather than doing the, the Indiana Jones style thing I have to do in my living room of removing an existing board game in my living room and and putting Via Nebula in there, <laughs> you know, like swapping the two weights in, yes. uh, in Indiana Jones. Um, instead, it just went into the hallway, which is like the waiting room for games going into my attic. Oh, God. It's like death row. Yeah, it is. Um, except not, because occasionally I give out 
like the the Shut Up and Sit Down forum mods uh, came over and I gave them like 100 board games to start up their board game lounge, which they do at board game conventions in the UK. Oh, yeah. There will be, I think there will be... Oh, let's plug it. Let's plug it. That. Yeah. Yes. Um, they're going to be at Nine Worlds, which is a very geeky... Uh, it's a geeky smorgasbord. Uh, do you like Doctor Who, My Little Pony, steampunk board games, uh, video games? Because it's all at Nine Worlds um, and it's like a melting pot where all the nerds uh, melt together in a hot room. Um, and they're going to be running the board game lounge there. <laughs> so if you would like to meet our forum moderators, play some board games with some good people, uh, why not pop down to Nine Worlds in London, which I believe... Ooh, I think it's right after I get back from Gen Con, which means it's in like about two weeks from the date of this podcast. So, uh, hey, if you're looking for something to do in a couple of weeks, quick Google Nine Worlds London. Yes, it's very friendly, very inclusive, very varied, and uh, very. I, I found it very easy to just turn up and meet interesting people. Was it you who said that they stayed at the hotel one night for the con, and uh, there were uh, bronies, My Little Pony fans, uh, delivering cupcakes attached to radio control cars? So they yeah. would drive cars down the hallway and into your room, and <laughs> there would be a cupcake yeah. on it. Yeah, it was uh, it was incredible. And uh, <laughs> if you're ever going to break the ice any way with somebody, I guess a fun way to do that is to drive a remote control vehicle full of baked goods uh, into, you know, if the door is open, obviously into their room. But they were, there'd be people who'd just be having like a, um, you know, a get together discussion about their favorite books or. Uh, one of them was like a tea party or something, but they just had tea, so the cakes were like delivered by remote control car that just drove in. And it's great because it got people being like high and talking to each other, and it was a good atmosphere. Yeah, sure, sure. That sounds great. Um, uh, so ooh, here's a game on your list Uh-oh. that I'm interested in. Didn't you Uh-oh. play uh, The Networks? Or Networks? Networks? Uh, you know what? I haven't had a chance to actually play that with other people yet. Oh, my bad. Well, you played the great... Because you can play solo, but uh, I don't want to say too much on... I thought you were going to say, but I don't want to play it solo. (laughs) Um, So, uh, the great dinosaur rush. Uh, There's a game. Bones. Bones? Bones. How do you feel about those? Uh, Bones are fine. When I was a kid, um, I was asked what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said a dinosaur detective. Um, Wow. Well, this might... Theme-wise, this might really appeal to you. Well, you know, man, I'm less interested in dinosaurs uh, as a as a man, um, which is weird because they're still really cool. Uh, they are. I like the big underwater ones; they're very creepy. So here's the thing. I mean, you know, obviously, there's theories going around now that they may have had feathers. That there might be things that we uh, were wrong about to do with dinosaurs, and we're still learning a lot about them because we've only really been digging them up for couple of hundred years at most hmm, yeah so here's the thing and i didn't know that a lot of people know this but i didn't know this until i opened the game but here's oh the thing with the game. is this about the guy who manufactured dinosaur bones yeah it's about the whole period of people basically kind of lying about dinosaurs <laughs> or trying to one-up each other or misrepresenting dinosaurs oh, but this is a really sad story right because weren't there two people who were like leads in their field and spent their entire lives um uh, announcing dinosaur bone discoveries and then one of them kind of won that particular like race this is a real life thing it's not a board game yeah, and uh, it's a real thing but after he won quote unquote you know the competition between these two after they both died it was revealed that the guy who won had been fabricating all his claims whereas the the other guy who had lost and was the second most important dinosaur detective in the world um his discoveries had been real so how would you like to be him 
which one? The awful <laughs> philandering. There's, uh, there's, oh god, there's like, there's about twenty of them that you can be who are all uh, men and women who spent their time being paleontologists in like the late eighteen hundreds, including some of the most notorious ones, and then some of the sort of just more professional ones and some of the more overlooked ones. Wow. Uh, you have you have this board that's full of uh, little wooden pieces, which are basically dinosaur bones. And I mean, this works wonderfully for the theme. I, I opened the manual and I was looking at the manual and I was like, oh, I see you dig up bones and you make dinosaurs. Wouldn't it be fun if you could just make anything? <laughs> and then I went through it and I was like, oh, you can. Wow. And the idea is you, you, move, you move your paleontologist around this board, you collect these tokens... Uh, you start with a few of them, or these pieces of wood, and there are basically three rounds where, after you've made a few moves, you have all these tokens behind your dinosaur screen, and you have probably one or two dinosaur guide cards, which you can always draw more of these from a deck. Uh, and basically, you have to build a dinosaur. Depending upon the colour of the piece of wood, that piece of wood has to be a dinosaur leg, or has to be a spine, or a rib, or a tail, or it can be some unique thing, which is basically like anything, like a uh, a fan or a horn on the head or whatever. I'm looking at it now. It's almost like you're assembling like a little Lego thing on your sheet. That's very much what it's like. And God, that's really is... quite cool. Oh, the dip- this, I'm looking at the cards now from the Kickstarter. The Diplodocus one is just a really long line. <laughs> this is it. So if you want to convince someone that you have made a certain dinosaur just have to be like oh look the legs are like this so it's clearly this dinosaur it doesn't matter that you put 20 spikes on it <laughs> although the head is huge and it another thing is like a lot of the body parts are interchangeable so the head pieces can be spine or rib pieces so you can decide like oh i want to build a really big dinosaur with a huge rib cage but a tiny head or a huge rib you know as long as you have enough like Basically, as long as you have like one bit of spine and one bit of tail, and there are two legs, it can be any length. And the thing is, as well as moving around collecting bits of dinosaur, you're constantly adjusting these museum categories of what the best kind of dinosaur is. Uh, because at the end of your turn, you'll get points based on how well you do in the categories. So it might be um, things like very big very tall dinosaurs are currently in fashion so you want to build something that has enormous legs or very long dinosaurs or dinosaurs with big heads and ferocious looking things dinosaurs with lots of unique features and the thing is you can all adjust these categories to represent what is cool in a museum and you just build a thing that tries to fit those as well as possible if it happens to have like a long tail you can be like, oh, look, it's clearly this dinosaur because it has this one single characteristic that we associate with this. Wow. But the, the thing is, you do this in secret and... Yeah, I'm looking I, at I've the pictures now. There are more. giant screens in front of the players. Yeah. And every time we pulled the screen away and looked at what we had, there was just a moment of, of just, oh, that's not a creature. Because <laughs> I built like a dinosaur kangaroo because I wanted to have the tallest possible. So I gave... You have to give it front legs... So I gave it tiny front legs and I'd accidentally collected too many back leg tokens. So its back leg was like 10 tokens long. <laughs> it was this massive dinosaur just with its sort of giraffe like shape, I guess, hopped around. And I made everyone name their dinosaurs and then like, explain how they worked. And it doesn't it doesn't get any better because you just get these people have just got like random humps on the back of your din- their dinosaur. Why? What is that for? What does that do? 
It scores points, yes, but what does it do? It looks ridiculous. <laughs> and then you do all this again, and you just collect more tokens. So the dinosaurs, you always have to build just one. So you basically disassemble your dinosaur, and then you build a bigger one again next Oh, turn. wait, is it like Galaxy Trucker, where you, you play it once with a small thing, and then you play it again with a bigger thing? Kind of, yeah, because you, you don't throw... You can donate bones to museums for points if you don't want them. But a lot of the time, you tend to just end up assimilating more and more you have another round of play where you go you collect more bits of bone you shuffle those behind your screen and then you're just like oh i've now got 30 pieces to build with instead of 20 so i guess it's a different dinosaur now that has more horns maybe <laughs> and it's you get an insight into your friends and how stupid they are when they reveal something that just has there's no rules about like shape there's only rules about components so they just have things like a tail that's a massive circle or a tail <laughs> that splits in two because i guess we couldn't find a rule that you couldn't do that <laughs> so, looking at the uh, this reminds me of um how you can keep the drawings in fake artist goes to new york because every time you play your friends will have produced some different hot garbage and i'm looking at pictures yeah. of some dinosaurs people have made and that like, God, people Google image search this. Like, it's like a pair of tiny front legs and then a sperm attached. <laughs> it's so stupid. And the thing is, that, that's where sort of the surprise come from, comes from. It's just bullshitting a dinosaur, which in tight is completely legal by the rules. But you look <laughs> at it and you're like, I don't understand what that is. Why, why have you done it that way? Why did the legs, why are the legs that shape? And they're like, well, they, they, they can be. And it, it, it jumps a lot. It's a jumpasaurus. Because <laughs> it has to jump up to trees to, like, eat the branches. Oh, my God. What, yeah, whatever. How many points is that? That's 50 points. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, and it, I mean, I want to play it some more before I fully get a formed opinion on it. Because th there were bits in the manual where we looked for certain rules. We couldn't find them. And I think it could be explained a bit quicker. And the, the thing is, moving around the board... Playing sort of the base part of the game is okay. The building the dinosaur bit is the bit that's really exciting. So I don't know yet if it's a game that I quite like or if it's a game that I really like. I've just, I'm kind of, it's fun, but I'm on the fence for like exactly how much I would recommend it. Yeah, the uh, the hex map in the middle, which is like an archaeological dig site, looks a little dry. It's it's fine. It's just you sort of, you move around, you pick things up. You can, in theory, sabotage what other people are doing and steal bones from them um and drop down traps and it's got a very good scoring mechanic whereby whenever you do a naughty thing such as dynamite bones to get some more bones or steel bones you get no notoriety tokens which oh, yeah? have a point value and they're they're hidden they go behind your screen and they get added to your score at the end of the game the more notorious you are the cooler you are unless wow. You're the most notorious person, at which point they're taken away from your score. Oh. So you want to be notorious or bad, but you don't want to be too bad because otherwise you ruin yourself. That is and a you never lovely know. mechanic. Yeah, and you see, that's a good thing. That's a thing that I thought was good, was exciting. The concept art for this is gorgeous. Like looks nice, and it's tactile. It's fun. Um, the things like adjusting museum categories, I wasn't so excited by doing that all the time because you're constantly bumping them up and down and then... You bump up a category and someone else just bumps it down again. Uh, and moving around and sort of collecting stuff wasn't as stimulating. But then, you know, competing to build something fun and then just the, the stupidity that you make. That is good. I did like that. That is completely awesome. I'm, uh, yeah, I, uh, 
It looks like a breezy, simple, easy thing to play. What's your favorite yes. dinosaur, Paul? Uh, I, the younger version of me would have probably had an answer. Now I want to say something like some of the huge swimming ones because they're, they're whale-like in like how big they are and how strange. Yeah, I watched a really they're good just... documentary on, uh, on whales recently. Really? Yeah, they uh, there were two divers um, who uh, were taking photos of um, blue whales in mating season. Blue whales being the the biggest mammal on earth, biggest animal on earth actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, the funny thing is that when blue whales are all chasing the female, um, they blow bubbles as a sign of aggression. So the two underwater photographers that were swimming by the blue whales couldn't go down with scuba tanks. Because if they exhaled any bubbles, then, uh, then the whales would be like, whoa, who's this really aggressive, tiny male who is competing for wow. the woman? Yeah, just bat him to one side. Oh, my God, that's amazing. No um, place, humans. I, I have a brief whale anecdote as well to add to your whale anecdote, which Ooh. is uh, I remember reading this a long time ago that whales generally can't communicate as far as they used to because there are so many ships in the ocean now that have engines that they're no making way. like background noise for whales. And apparently, we're pretty sure that historically they could communicate over greater distances because there was less interference. Hmm. They, they would talk to each other like halfway across an ocean, which I find kind of amazing. But we've ruined that now, just like we've ruined pigs. We've just ruined animals. Oh, my God. God, I tell you what, who, say you're someone who's not ruining animals. Please do. him who is in our mailbag this month. Ooh, put your hand in my mailbag. Paul, do you... But that was weird. I squeaked there. Uh, Paul, <laughs> do you remember all the way back in podcast 34, uh, towards the end of last year, where we were contacted by Antarctic scientist Ben Robinson? I remember that we never heard him again, and then there was that weird news report about strange lights over Antarctica. So, you, man, you joke. Wherever. The reason he couldn't respond to us uh, is because of an Antarctic disaster to do with uh, shipping people home. Listen, everybody. So, back in Podcast 34, Ben Robinson uh, contacted us saying that he was going to be a scientist in Antarctica, at the bottom of the globe for a while, and wanted to know what board games to bring. And uh, we gave him some advice. We told him to take Cosmic Encounter and, and consult Detective and some stuff. And we knew that he would be trapped in a snowy wasteland with nothing but yeah. board games for company. And it would be like the ultimate test of a board game. I am so excited to say that this week he replied to us and has sent us an update from the bottom of the South Pole, which I'm going to choose now to call Shut Up and Sit Down's Antarctica office. <laughs> Is, is he okay? Uh, he is fine. Um, Did the, he sound at all unhinged or uh, like he'd been possessed? Well, Paul, this is a discovered lengthy... Discovered a hidden spacecraft? This is not a short email, um, although I'm sad to tell you that there is no Lovecraftian response. But um, uh, do you want to uh, read it out? It's long enough that we should probably interject at various points. Um, but it's, it's, I've already trimmed it down a bit, but it's, it's very worth reading. Because uh, we're talking about whales, we're interested in things other than board games, and this is a good mix of uh, board game and uh, science. So, okay. uh, do you want to uh, take it away? I, I will. I will follow it later with another anecdote. But first of all, I should say I've not read this yet. This I've deliberately not read this, so it'll be a surprise. Okay. So I'm coming into this cold, like a penguin. Good. That's good. First of all. Apologies for the wait. Combination of medical evacuation from the pole and procrastination. Very patient, and we are over leaving midwinter. So now seems a perfect time to get in touch, which I guess means he's over the hump of the colder season. Yeah. 
because it, it, when it gets really, really cold, I think they, they have a thing where they don't, um, they get very few flights in and out. Um, yeah. You're completely stranded. So it was the rare thing of them using the plane to, uh, to put people on. Uh, the Antarctica really does want to kill you. If, if that's not completely clear, like it is, it is astonishing how much that continent was not meant for humans. It's amazing that people actually have become good at being tenacious enough to just sit there and, you know. Ah, oh, Paul, I'm reading. Dig a re- in. I'm reading a really good book right now, um, called Aurora Rama. Um, have you heard of that one? No. It's just a really good fantasy book. It's like sort of Victoriana, and it's set in a in an Arctic city. It's called New Venice, and uh, it's like what would happen if humanity had set up a city in uh, the Arctic in the like 19th century, and it's just so badass. It's like a bohemian city in the middle of nowhere where it's always night. Oh, it's so good. Really fun oh, fantasy book. Good. Yeah, people should pick that up if they want some fun reading. It is difficult, he says, to describe Antarctica. The pictures never seem to capture the feel of the place. It's nothing like I predicted and better in every way. Instead of introducing board games to everyone at my base, instead I found I was just adding to a lively board game culture. Yes, that already existed. That's really good to hear. Um, during the crossover, the past winters handed over a manager guide storybook time here uh, sorry magazine slash guide slash storybook of their time here and one of the main activities was an infamous game of thrones board game that caused several members of the base to stop talking to each other and he puts only slight hyperbole there which uh, that's amazing if you're stuck at the bottom of the planet with a bunch of people and you're already not talking to them i mean didn't we joke about that happening like when we first suggested this that board games would ruin friendships and then you know people would actually die because you know of all the places to ruin them i know like literally people this is why it's so interesting because you're down there it's like being on a ship i guess you know like where you're down there with like 30 people or whatever in a horrible environment um just that's it you know forever Hmm. I'm looking at what he says next, and it's uh, we've carried on the tradition nearly every Sunday. It often includes wine, cheese, ale, a very late night, a very very late night. Uh, one surprise was the success of Surprise: Escape from Atlantis. Survive Escape from Atlantis. How are you failing to read this? <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm really sorry. Okay. Um, I worried this was too silly, but found it simple enough and random enough that people's personalities came through while playing and it was quickly played without any prompting. Cosmic Encounter, on the other hand, had the opposite problem. I thought it was a great game, but it never had very much support behind it. Now that's sad. Uh, I put it down to a lot of players needing to know the rules effectively and being a gamer's game and difficult to find the correct numbers for which i'm surprised by actually that he says that for cosmic you know i do think cosmic is a gamer's game though i think it's interesting i think i feel like this is a a refresher in uh why the games you recommend might not always be correct you know we love cosmic because all of our friends are gamers you know it's a lot of Hmm. nonsense i think the the joy of cosmic is in seeing how the rules like interact in weird ways and create a new game every time which is terrible if you don't play games and just want to know what you're doing well he he makes a very interesting point next he says this leads me to a little surprise which i found with board games down here numbers are crucial the game works best with five when a game works best with five or even six players that's effectively a third of the base personnel <laughs> trying to get that together is difficult Fair point, which is why Settlers of Catan or Ticket to Ride Europe is often our fullback. Hmm. The biggest disappointment the entire time in Antarctica is Sherlock Holmes consulting detective as the no! first mission. 
Oh my god, the first mission directory map and instructions were lost at the end of summer before we got a chance to try them. I well, how, a hang new on. copy <laughs> to be brought in the beginning of summer and plan to spend the spare time. Sorry, plan to send. Plan to send to send the spare to Halley. He's just written that. Oh wow! Twice. Yeah, no. In your defence, there are loads of typos in this email. You know, like I think he uh, he's typing with frozen fingers, or he's got Arctic madness. He's got Arctic madness. Um, we shouldn't judge, you know. I'm I am challenging Halley. I think is a colleague, I guess. To an no, inter-base. Halley is another base. Oh yeah, to an interbase Sherlock Holmes competition to see who are the best detectives in Antarctica. Brackets. Oh, wow, if I get my way, really I will cool. also include other bases. I'm sorry for laughing, but just the idea of him ordering it and the idea that a, a guy puts that on a plane next to, you know, all these vital medical supplies and equipment, and probably the plane's not that big and it can only carry so much stuff. <laughs> just go. What the hell is this? Uh, I mean, um, yeah, it's. Uh, I get. I get mad enough when I lose something in my flat, which is like basically two rooms. I can't imagine losing something on an Arctic base where it's like, you know God. it can't have gone far, you know, short of a penguin stealing it. Because there's only like, I've looked over there on Google Maps. If you want to look at this Arctic vehicle on Google Maps, by the way, um, the word is R-O-T-H-E-R-A, Rothera. And you can look at it and, re- and it's amazing to do because uh, you bring it up on Google Maps and it's like a little building and then you zoom out and out and out and out and out and you realize how stupefyingly big Antarctica is. Um, but yeah, like, you know, the Sherlock Holmes Consultant Detective directory is somewhere in Rothera, right? Um, yeah. But, but where could it be? It's a, I, it's, I mean, they must have so many scientific papers and things. Oh, uh, and it would blend in with, um, you're right. It really would. Uh, he goes on, he says, Spyfall and Codenames were interesting games. I found them difficult to gauge the correct audience for. A night in the lounge seemed to be the best situation as people relaxed into their roles especially Sean, who, as the spy, began speaking in French, leading us all to believe that the cruise ship we were all on had a French passenger. Fair enough. (laughs) Cards Against Humanity was played relatively frequently in the summer, but strangely not in winter. This is a bit that I found really interesting. Hmm. Okay. A weird effect of being isolated with 20 other people is the familiarity with everyone. Cards Against Humanity gets a lot of its humour and shock from people saying or placing outrageous cards. When you're eating, working, relaxing with the same people all day, I think it makes it a bit tamer, unnecessary, as there's very little we can do to shock each other anymore. Which, yeah, I guess that makes sense for a game that initially is about surprise, but I don't think it has any staying power. Well, no, I mean... Material, content aside, I don't think it has staying power. Well, sure. But, I mean, and that's fine, because lots of board games, I think, are okay, even if you only play them once a year. I don't think that's necessarily a problem. But I do find it interesting that in summer, when all the scientists come in and you don't know people, you get against, you get out Cards Against Humanity and you talk about, you know, like, uh, dying black babies or whatever, like, some of the awful cards in that are. And that's fun because you shock people. But then in winter, when, like, you're essentially a family and... You can't shock anyone because everyone knows each other. The fact that that kills Cards Against Humanity is nuts. It's really interesting. He goes on and he said, uh, it's important to note, though it's difficult to analyze games here, one thing I didn't expect or anticipate was how important and special everyone down here would make it. I've been blessed to spend winter with 20 people that make being isolated with them a joy, not a challenge. I found board games are a way we used to interact with each other and spend time together. And amongst this lot, I'm not sure any game would be bad. It's more about the people and the mood. 
although excellent suggestions from Shut Up and Sit Down cannot be understated, any failings are likely due to the reading the room wrong, as even a simple game of Liar's Dice can be a highlight some nights. Yeah, Liar's mm. Dice. Mm. To conclude, on a different note, though Antarctica is a wonderful place, it still takes my breath away, and I wish I could do it justice in words. I've been offered to spend a second winter at the bottom of the world, bringing my time here to three years minus one month sanity break, which is, yes, they call it that, he says. And I have, of course, accepted. This means ordering more board games and more research in the most isolated regions of the Earth. Hopefully Shut Up and Sit Down will not mind me plugging science here. Well, no, we don't. But if anyone's, anyone's interested, please visit the British Antarctic Survey website and look out for a blog introducing the use of remotely operated vehicles at Rothera. Rothera? Rothera? I don't know. Rothera. I don't know, man. <laughs> Oh, my word. Uh, if you'd Closest like more target. information about life in Antarctica or stories, let me know, i.e. diving under the ice Saturday nights with fancy dress and falling down a crevasse. Okay, it just says, let me know. Uh, uh, I would like to hear about, is that all one night? Fancy dress <laughs> and falling down a crevasse? What, so you're How dressed you as like Marie Antoinette and then you fall down you know? a crevasse? <laughs> Like you, surely you already know all the stuff that's there. You can't surprise somebody with fancy dress. Oh yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Unless like everyone comes as a mummy and you all dress yourself up in toilet paper. Goodness me. We've we have overrun. Uh, but I tell you what, people can now look forward to a lovely interview with uh, Dr. Rainer Knizia. I had fun during this interview, didn't you, Paul? I had fun. Uh, one thing you won't pick up from the podcast is his really quite good bow tie. Oh, he dresses like a proper board game designer, doesn't he? He does a bit, actually, yeah. Okay, so if people would like to uh, have some insights on uh, board games from the guy who's designed the most published board games in the entire world, take a listen to this. Hello, everyone. We're here at the UK Games Expo 2016, which is the biggest yet that we've ever been to. And Quinz and I are stood right now, right next to Rainier Knizia. Hello. Hello, Rainer Knizia. Rain I'm so sorry. I was about to ask it's if I pronounced right. that correctly. No. <laughs> it's all right. How often do people get your name wrong? All the time. And you've been in living in England now. You've been as a German games designer for 23 years? That is correct. I'm sorry. <laughs> Why are you sorry? I feel I should apologise on behalf of my countrymen. Oh, yes, he wasn't apologising because you've been a game designer for 23 years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, on behalf of the mispronunciations. Yes, sure, okay. sure. So, um, I had a question. Uh, your, your sort of games catalogue is so vast now, and one of the most prolific designers in the board game community, prolific and of course successful designers in the board game community has ever seen. There's a lot of lists online where people will tell you which Knizia uh, games are the ones that you have to play, which are the best. I'd like to hear it from you. I would like to hear from all the games you've made. If someone were to play, say, uh, three Knizia games which, uh, which sort of summarise you or that you love the most, which are those three? So I have 600 children, and you are now, you are now asking me for my three favorite children. <laughs> I'm afraid so. It is an impossible question, and uh, the answer is very hard. Uh, it 
really depends. When you look at the lists, people always start with what they like best and then they categorize them. And if you go to a different group, then they have completely different favorites. Uh, I will name a few. I will not name three because it ties me down. <laughs> but I think for an easy dice game, I would uh, try out uh, Picomino or Heckmeck or Rechenwormen. It's the same game, the Worm game, uh, for a bit of fun. Is if you want Picomino, yes. Uh, and if you want to play a two-player game, maybe you want to try Lost Cities or you want to try uh, Battle Line. Um, of course, if you want to really bite your fingernails because there's so much to do and so little time, then you do maybe Through the Desert. Um, if you want something more meaty, you go to Euphrates and Tigris, or Tigris and Euphrates, how they call it on the other side oh, of they, the world. Oh, the name is different? On other... Yes, in Europe, I think it's, uh, it's Euphrates Tigers. and Tigris. Oh, really? Euphrates and Tigris, yes. And in America, or in the English language world, I believe it's Tigris and Euphrates. Um, and, of course, that's uh, uh, out in the classic series of Fantasy Flight now. There, yes, there is. Uh, yes, that's the newest, that was good newest fun. Uh, edition, yes. So this is a few which spring to mind, which means now I have uh, highlighted five or six and I have uh, trampled down another 594. <laughs> uh, if you ask me the question next time, I will give you completely different oh, really? uh, six games. Yes. So you, you don't have, among your own selection, you don't have like some games where you just, the, the ones that you're really, really proud of that you always find that you're pulling out and playing yourself. My understanding is that parents secretly do love, speaking not as a parent, but parents <laughs> secretly do have a favorite child. I might have a secret favorite child. You wouldn't (laughs) tell us, though. But but you see, I mean, as you say, uh, the ones you love, uh, at the moment we are in the process of re-releasing Medici, yes, with completely new graphics uh, by Grail Games, uh, and I'm really looking forward to this. And then there may be a little surprise coming after this. And so it's, it, it, for me, it really depends with whom do I play and what's my mood and what type of theme do I want to play. And uh, some games of mine I haven't played for a long time. And as they come on the table, I remember what I liked about the child. And uh, it's, uh, I try to make my children as independent as possible. Uh, there are 600 of them. Wow. Did you, uh, did you ever imagine that there would be that many games that you would be... I mean, you've been doing this for a long time now. Yeah. Uh, well, I never imagined to become a full-time game designer. It just depends from which perspective you look. I find that, just to interrupt slightly, um, at what point in your career were you able to go full-time? Because yeah. I think a lot of people listening to this who are designing games might not realize just how difficult it is to yeah. make this a career. Uh, it is difficult. It is a risk. Uh, I have played games and designed games as long as I can think. I wasn't even 10 years old when I started, but it was the love of it. Uh, I, I got into a proper job. Well, at least at that time they called banking a proper job. Oh, you used to be uh, <laughs> yes. banking. Yes, uh, that also brought me over to England. And uh, yes, I managed a big company, 300 people. And, uh, what did the company do? Uh, we sold mortgages. Okay. And we uh, securitized them as well. Uh, you are familiar with subprime uh, mortgages. They were not subprime, but, but they were. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but I got out early enough. Uh, anyway, you asked me the question, when did I decide and how did that go? Um, I had some savings. And the most important thing is I had established myself somewhat in the industry. I had some games published. I knew how the business works. 
And I also very well knew once I get out of management, I will not be able to go back. Mm. But oh, really? in, in, yeah, it, you can't take a break for, for a few years and then say, well, I failed on this side, now I come back to this side. It doesn't. Uh, uh, luckily, I didn't fail, I believe, on the uh, game design side. And right. it, 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 the main point for the decision was I have only got one life. And I want to do what I like best and where I can where I really fi- feel at home and where I can, in the end, get the biggest reward out of it. And you get the reward from other people. And if you sell a mortgage, nice. Nobody loves mortgages. Yeah. They might love their house. but So you are a means to the end. Whereas if people play games, they love the games. You bring a lot of exciting time, stimulation, joy to the people. Bringing enjoyment to the people is the best reward you can get. Right, yeah. We were just uh, talking to um, Tom Vassell of the Dice Tower, a very famous board game reviewer yesterday. And um, I think it's quite... Throughout the industry, a lot of people, reviewers and designers... Um, come to conventions because conventions give you the, the energy you need to go through the year mm. because it's not like there's a lot of money in board games and so people go to conventions and you just feel that joy and the love and you meet mm-hmm. people and then that allows you to keep doing what you do. It's funny how vital they are to the, to the hobby. Yeah. It reminds you of the people, I think, because otherwise, you know, we are on, online putting things on the internet, not seeing who is watching a video or listening to a podcast. I assume as a game designer, it's it's not a quick process making a game, and then you don't. It's not like you physically sell the games to other people. You don't know where the games go or who picks them up. Or yeah, yeah I mean, it's uh, th- there are different phases. When I'm as now on a convention, I'm open. I speak to people. I look around. I, I see what fascinates people, uh, what binds people to the table. Uh, but then, again, when I'm back in the studio with the playtesters, I hide away from the public because it takes a lot of focus, it takes a lot of uh, uh, yeah, energy to, to test the games, retest the games until they are hopefully perfect. And um, as, as you say, it's, it's a big, uh, big amount of 600 games. But if you put your, your life's energy into this and the enthusiasm, there's nothing I want to do else than design games so you get up in the morning you sing games and you go to bed in the evening and you sing games I do love the uh, the bow tie you're wearing now which is a sort of um, coloured checkerboard game pattern on it it's very nice do you think it's possible to create a perfect game? Uh, yes and no uh, I think there are perfect games for the moment for the right environment uh, for a situation uh, there is no generally perfect game because there are so many different play situations and time moves on. Not what, even Ra. Uh, not even Ra. <laughs> uh, there are games which live longer. Ra certainly lives longer. Uh, for me, as a mathematician, it's fascinating that when you auction something, you don't only auction the value of what you get, but you also auction future power to auction again, yes, yes. to bid again. Mm. And uh, so you can look at basic ideas behind games and then uh, you can see what, what do you make out of them. And some of the ideas carry longer and stay alive and relevant for a longer time. Other games get taken over by events because the world moves on. Our games are a picture and a mirror of the world. And so some of the games from the 70s, 80s, 90s even are a bit too slow. They, they, they miss the dynamics and therefore they are not no longer that relevant for today's time. That doesn't mean they were bad. That doesn't mean they might have even have been perfect at some time. Yes. So that's the answer to being perfect or not. That's a- I was going to say, so that means then uh, when you come up with a mechanic or an idea, you never really know if this is going to last 
five years, ten years, or or less. I mean, so obviously, some of your games have been around for a long time. It's this is one of the aspects, like in in the movies. Uh, even the, the movie studios never know which one is going to the blockbuster. Be the blockbuster. I mean, they usually say eight of ten movies lose money. One just earns what it costs, and the tenth is the one that finances everything. Mm. But how do you know which one is the tenth? And so we were talking a lot about this yesterday, where um, people at uh, the Czech Games booth were saying. Because I was here last year and I played an early prototype of Codenames. Mm-hmm. I played it and I was like, this is great. And everyone agreed it was great. But then no one, not even Czech Games, could have guessed that yeah. it would go on to sell as much as it did. Yeah. And, the, and there are many good games out there, but being good is not enough. You need to be lucky as well and you need to just hit the right uh, wipe and, and, and then it needs to get viral and it needs to move. And uh, it's... You can have two perfectly similar games, same perfect games. One takes off and becomes very successful. The other one gets forgotten. So, it's uh, it's, it's a lot like putting things on the internet. A lot of businesses don't realize our, mm-hmm. our gambles. Um, I find it very interesting that you have a background as a mathematician because something I feel like I've noticed as a <clears throat> as a games critic uh, and sort of outsider looking into the industry is a lot of the game designers I like the most tend to have incredibly specialized backgrounds in something. Um, so, uh, Jeff Engelstein, who I like a great deal, is an engineer, I think. God, I hope I got that right. Um, you're a mathematician. Um, Alan Gerding, the designer of Two Rooms and a Boom. I thought that game He's was a excellent. psychologist, Yeah, isn't then it? it turned out he, was, he, he left being a prison psychologist uh, to mm-hmm. publish Two Rooms and a Boom. Mm-hmm. Um, is this something that you think is a very powerful strength if you want to design board games? Uh, one has to be careful. Uh, each player and each designer comes with specific strengths to the game and to the process of designing. Uh, and I know illustrators who design games and they start drawing the board. They say, I don't know how it plays yet, but I'm just doodling um, around, doodling around, yes, and, and it, that's how they develop the game. I have a more scientific mind, so I will close my eyes and put the elements together and see how it works, and usually it works much better in my head once I put it on paper and it replayed. It sometimes doesn't quite work how I thought it should work, mm-hmm. so something is broken in the universe. There is a slight <laughs> gap between my brain and the universe. Uh, So, it it is a process where everybody has a different approach. I think that's fantastic because I see game design as as an art form. And uh, you want a big variety. Every designer has has their own handwriting. And so you want the different handwritings. You want that competing. And... Uh, yes, of course. I will approach it just from a subconscious point, subconscious point of view. I will approach my designs in a certain way. Uh, the, the main thing is just whatever strengths you have, be careful that you just do not try to solve all the problems of design in the world with this one strength. Okay. Because then you turn your strengths into weakness. Or this uh, quote, if all you have is a, is a hammer, then yes. everything in the world will soon look like a nail. And... So what are your weaknesses, then? Because everyone knows, you know, the strength you have to do with balancing designs and creating um, very robust puzzles. Well, I would admit my weakness if, if I had any. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's probably difficult for me to, to state. When people look in, they, they probably see more weaknesses in my design. Uh, it's a balancing act. I'm a perfectionist. And it's, it's sometimes recognizing 
uh, when to stop, when it is good enough, uh, how much more to put in, but also in the start of the process to understand which of the designs is going to fly and which one is not going to fly. The biggest disaster is not putting a lot of time into a game which then really becomes successful. The biggest disaster is not to recognize that you sink a lot of time, uh, the sunk cost or sunk time fallacy. It's not working yet, but I will put in another three weeks and then it will work. And that become, can become a weakness to, to not understand when to stop. Yeah, I think um, we've encountered a lot of designers, um, first-time designers especially, when they, make, uh, when they have their first design, they become unusually attached to it. The funny thing about that is that, is, is that um, this happened with City of Remnants, actually, which is a game we quite liked. Oh, yes. Um, from Pad Hat. But the funny thing about that is the designer created it. Mm-hmm. And he loved the setting. He loved the game so much. And he poured all of his time in and released it. Mm-hmm. And now you talk to him and he's like, I love that game so much. That the best thing I could have done for it is not release it. Mm-hmm. Make other games. And then after I'd made six games, I'd go back to City of yeah. Remnants and would go... Now I can apply everything I've learned to this game that I really care about. So yes, the best thing you can do often is abandon projects sometimes. Yeah, or let them rest and, and come back to them. Mm. Yes, yes. Actually, I had an interesting conversation with Eric Lang, uh, which we published on this podcast a while back, where he said that he was stagnating um, into creatively. And he had his draw that I imagine you do of like 100 projects that, um, that he had finished. And he actually threw them away. Um, rather than having any kind of weight uh, or like yeah. this, this stuff dragging him down, he threw it all in the garbage and, uh, and said that that was the best thing he'd ever done for his career. I think that is very important to also cut off the old loads and, and make yourself free for new things. I think we live in a, in a wonderful time because a lot of things are changing quite radically. And this is fantastic for, for creative people. The worst thing that can happen is nothing changes. How can you be creative if, if it's, the environment is always the same? And for us creative people, for the artists, it is, if you keep your mind open, it is so easy to adjust to the world and stay relevant. If you have a factory that does videotapes, you have a problem. You can't just turn around and say, tomorrow we do something else. You, you have this, this baggage. And essentially, as a designer, you have the baggage in your head. You just needed to make up your mind. It's gone. It's gone. Yes, I, yes. It's not easy, but it's all up to you. Should you do uh, one more question? One or two, one or two more. Okay. I don't know. I'm enjoying this. Sure. Did you... Uh, are you looking to me? Well, I, there, there was... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. One, question, one other question that I had was... Um, we were just wondering uh, what you do for fun. Like, what would... Uh, if you were just looking to enjoy yourself mm-hmm. on a free evening, what does Rainer Knizia do for fun? The problem is... My greatest fun is designing games. <laughs> um, it's, of course, it has changed since I gave up my job and now I'm a full-time designer. Mm-hmm. Because standing on two feet is a good thing because it keeps you sharp on both sides, on the, on the banking side at that time and then on the design side. Because now I'm standing, so to speak, on one foot and um, you sometimes need to get away from it. So I have uh, some rituals that I do some sports, I run... Uh, so that gets me away from it. I go out for walks, and then I hope not to think about it. But I also deliberately, for example, shut down over Christmas for two weeks. And I do not look at a game and do not think about mm. games just to completely get my mind away. Because usually it ticks and ticks and ticks in your mind. And um, it's, it's, and then when you say, okay, I don't design, let's play another game, then, of course, it ticks again. So it's, uh, I read... 
um, but I'm not reading in a way from front to end. I'm more, oh, that's an interesting book, and I look for the right chapter and read it. And so wow. It's, it's funny. I've started doing that. I actually, um, wow. when I was a teenager, I would finish everything religiously, even if I hated the book. And now as an adult, I'm like, I finish maybe with the third of the books I pick up and the rest I abandon halfway or a quarter of the way through because hey that actually means I'm reading more stuff more interesting stuff I'm enjoying reading more That's fair enough I, I buy a lot of books and a lot of books don't survive more than 10 minutes but I don't regret this because I say if I really give my time for it I want a good book so I'd rather like well, to buy some five fallacy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I'd, yeah I'd, hmm. I'd rather like to buy five or seven books and then sit there and some book gives me 10 minutes and that's fine and some book gives me three, four, five hours and that's perfect and again it's fine Finding the right book, it's finding the right game. There may be the right, perfect book for the right time. If there is a perfect game, uh, the situation, the people, it, it's, it's the same for many things. Well, the, uh, slightly related to that, I guess, we're probably going to have people listening to this who are wannabe game designers or designing games at the moment. Your catalogue of games you've designed, some of them are more complex designs, some of them are simple and actually quite straightforward. Yeah. Would you, is it easy to recommend that people start off with simple ideas because some people really dive in at the deep end if you had guidance for people would you say go one way go another or i think the guidance would be do that game which you enjoy most which the type of game which you are closest to uh, don't try to do something alien say okay i really love the two-hour games but i think i should start with a 10-minute game that's not going to work uh, so do what you're closest to, what you really love, where you have most experience, because these which you love, you will have played the most, therefore have the most background. Uh, I think it's, it's less which type of game. It's more make sure that you make a perfect game out of this one. And then don't be afraid that if you show it to somebody else that they will steal it from you. Uh, <laughs> go and my advice more would be how to get published is once you have the perfect product, that's what you need, then go to small publishers when you start because a small hmm. publisher you will learn much more you will have a much better direct contact and a small publisher if they like it will put their heart into it they can't allow themselves to have a flop and you learn through the process and i think as a game designer it's not only to understand how do i design a game you need to understand the back end of everything which comes after i deliver the prototype to a publisher because that makes you a better designer as well and that learning is much easier with a small company with two, three people there than with a big conglomerate where you are essentially, after you've delivered it, uh, you're out of the process. Mm. Okay. Fantastic. That's interesting. That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a great pleasure. That was a lot of fun talking to him, Paul. I liked the bit uh, where he said that he had 500 children or however many it was. Um, which was just such a colossally disturbing bit of imagery. I'd uh, forgotten about that, but he is uh, is not. He's a unique man. He's not like any other game designer I've ever met. Yeah, we uh, made the mistake when we started Shut Up and Sit Down of um, playing the stuff that Rainer here was putting out now, um, which is a terrible mistake um, because his strongest games are all from the beginning of his board game career. I'm talking about Ra, Modern Art, Samurai, Lost Cities... Um, some really, really great games. And uh, I would love to get a review of Modern Art up, actually. But uh, I think it's currently out of print. So uh, I think it is because I was uh, Googling it a while back and just thinking about how pop, you know, how it has a very good reputation. And I just have never seen it in a shop. Never. Yeah, and neither have I. That's the five years Shut Up Sit Down has been running. But yeah, you better believe that uh, as soon as we can do a review, we will do one for you. This has been... A lethargic, but still quite happy, and I think interesting, shut up and sit down podcast, wouldn't you say, Paul? 
I don't feel lethargic. I feel excited. Oh, well, you're moving into your new flat. What's the best thing about your new flat? Uh, it's going to be a lot quieter than this. Hopefully this podcast sounds fine, but oh, it's so I get all these neighbor noises through the walls and I get people stamping upstairs and slamming doors and yeah, everything I... here is made of wood and it just, it's like an echo chamber. Aren't they uh, demolishing the building after you move out? Yeah, well, they it was like a neighborhood review report or something published recently, and you can download it and look at it, and it look at what what the community development's going to do in this neighborhood. It's all really good. It's very organized, very thorough. And you look at the block I live on, and they're like, yeah, this is going to be a 10-story nice apartment complex. And you're like, that, that's not what I have right now. Oh, I see. <laughs> yes, of course. They're just going to flatten it in a, in a year or two. Wow. Uh, which makes sense, because it's a good spot and it's a kind of an old crappy building they must have heard you were moving out they're like oh that cool english guy is still here so he's got taste and it's not worth knocking down the building yet then as soon as you're out it's like okay let's tear it down i think that's exactly what happened i think so i think so so next time uh, well god paul and i are going off to gen con this week i'm gonna see you i'm gonna hug you uh you gonna let me hug you I thought you were talking to the listeners. Oh, God, no. Well, we'll hopefully see about 650 of you because we're doing a 200-person show on the Friday night and 400 people on the Yeah, although Saturday. I guess when they've listened to this, this will have, have now happened. No, uh, I'll be putting this up on Wednesday, so... It will oh, it'll be happening. Yeah, if you're listening to this, there's a good chance Paul and I are in Gen Con uh, work in the crowd right now. So you may actually like, be listening to this while we're doing another one. Shit. Wow. We can That's reveal, I think, that we're going to have the, the International Money Heads World Championships uh, on Friday night. And uh, if you have no idea what that sentence means, then uh, just look forward to the next podcast. It'll, <laughs> it'll feature <laughs> some very silly shit. All right. This has been Shut Up It's Down. I've been Quentin Smith. I've been Paul Dean. Thank you for listening to this very, I guess, quite special one. Special? In what Arctic way? Arctic interviews. Yeah. Strange games. I feel like this one was a was a, a little bit special. Yeah, I feel like we've played a lot. And uh, and now we tell you guys, you go out, go forth, play a lot yourself, because there's altogether too much for just me and Paul to play. That's what I think. Yeah.